Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Galatians chapter 4, and we will begin our reading in verse 1. Now, let me just tell you before we start, I have chosen as a title today a name, one of the names for God. It is the most controversial name for God in all of Scripture. That name is Emmanuel, because that name means God with us. So when Jesus came, we didn't just get a teacher, a good example, someone who really had it together that could, could uh, show us kind of how we ought to do it, someone that was just nicer than everybody else. No, he was God. And so we're going to take a look at that. That is what set, separates Christianity from mere religion. It is pivotal uh, in the Christian faith because if He is not God and if He did not die for our sinfulness and rise from the dead, then I can tell you all of Christianity is a lie. It's worthless. We might as well go home now. And I will say this. I meet people sometimes that say I just have a hard time believing that. Well, I'm going to try to do as much apologetics as I can, and I'm going to try to preach the Word as clear as I can. But you know, one of the things, and and I hope you don't hear me say I'm just giving up, but I'm learning from watching how Jesus did this that some are just not going to believe. That's just how it is. And it's not going to be that I'm going to come up with something from a uh, you know, one of my apologetic studies, or I'm going to come across a new book or a new idea or a special verse, and that's going to win them over. I, I can just tell you, most actually are never, ever going to believe that. And so I have to say, I guess that's okay. It's not for them, but I can't do anything about it. The Holy Spirit has to touch their hearts. And until that happens, it's never going to matter how many sermons they hear, what kind of advice you give them, how much you love them. uh, They're just not going to get it. So we're in Galatians. And let me just tell you this. The book of Galatians and men, I would highly recommend you pay close attention this morning because uh, I'm fairly certain that starting January the 10th, when we resume our men's studies on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock, that we will be in the book of Galatians. So hopefully um, you will be able to be a part of that. But the book of Galatians is written to Gentile Christians that got exposed to some Judaism and got talked into a terrible deal leaving the idea that Christ has done it all for us and that we cannot earn salvation, they began to revert back to some old Judaistic practices. Some of the Jews talked these Gentiles into circumcision and to ceremonies and holy days and things like that. And Paul comes to them and says, you started out so well. 
But somebody has infiltrated your churches and has led you astray. So let's listen to what he says here. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he's using this as an example, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. He has no way as an infant of, of appreciating what he's got. The relationship with his father has taken care of everything from now on, but he doesn't realize that as a child. It says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. It was the father in the Roman culture that would decide when this child is old enough to be called a man. So also we, while we were children, we were in bondage under the elemental things of the world. This was going to be practices of religion and and just religious ideas in general, we were in bondage to all of that, he said. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. Born of woman. And just those two phrases. He is son of God, and he is son of man. Born of woman, born under the law. So that he might redeem those who are under the law, that he might receive, or that we might receive, the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, (coughs) crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I believe with all my heart, doesn't matter how long we preach it, how much we study it for ourselves, if we are not careful, and and I'm going to tread softly here because I don't want to assume a lot that everybody is, is like me, heaven forbid, but I'm guessing there's quite a few similarities I'm guessing that sometimes you feel like me that if you were honest, you just felt like a big human failure. Just can't seem to measure up. Just was doing so well one week and kind of did not so good the other week. And, and, and it's a constant struggle. And we know something is wrong, but we keep saying the things. We come to church and talk about, oh, it's all about grace. It's all about God. It is all about God doing it for us. We're not making ourselves righteous. We cannot, but we've been declared righteous because of the gift of grace that God has given us. Those are all cool things to say. We say them, we amen them, we lift them up to God, we sing about them, we shout about them, but sometimes we don't always live with that kind of conviction in our heart. We may try to deny those feelings sometimes. I mean, I want to because I'm embarrassed. I've been preaching nearly 44 years. You'd think by now I'd I'd have this part of it down. It is the part that has haunted me the most. Knowing that it is all by grace, it is all by God, that I have been adopted as a child of God. Nothing's ever going to change that. But sometimes that legalistic thinking begins to 
eased back in my mind, and I began to be hard on myself. And I began to be judgmental of not only me, but you as well. My focus becomes moral success or failure. How did I do measuring myself by this, that, or the other instead of the presence of Christ? As a matter of fact, uh, we are taking up Lottie Moon Christmas offering next week. It is an absolute wonderful uh, time for us. God has blessed these offerings every year. I hope He blesses it again this year. It's really pretty incredible how God has worked through that because we are able to send money directly to missionaries all over the world. None of that money is used for administrative costs or anything. It all goes directly to the mission field. It is a wonderful opportunity. But I have to tell you, we're sending money thousands of miles away to people who have never heard the gospel from people who many times have still yet to fully experience the gospel. Still holding our own feet to the fire. Still expecting more from others than is any of our business. Leaping into that legalism that just drains the life out of you. If we went back to chapter 3, verse 3, chapter prior to this one, see those math skills? This is 4. That would be 3. Incredible. In Galatians 3 3, Paul asks him, says, Are you foolish? <laughs> That's that that is akin to our modern day. You stupid. Not are you, but you stupid. Having begun by the Spirit, you started out with God doing it all in you and through you. So Are you now being perfected or finished or completed? Did you pick up the responsibility for your salvation somewhere along the way and now you're being completed or perfected by the flesh? He says, are you foolish? You started out trusting in God and you remember a lot of us did that. When we got saved, we just came and just fell before God, just crumbled. We didn't believe we brought anything. We might have been humble before God. I'll never forget that night in my life. And man, I knew I didn't have a prayer in the world. My only hope was the grace of God. But then over time, if we're not careful, we are just like the Galatians. We begin to start working on ourselves. And then if we're not careful, we start working on other people. Well, let's take a look at these verses and let Paul help us. I hope he will. Man, this message has been on my heart so heavy this week. And so just let me preach to me and you listen if you want to, because I need it. He says, now I say, verse 1, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave. You can't tell the difference. He's got 49 people telling him what to do. And back then, they had all kind of servants. You remember in that day, how, how tough would you like that, young people? Now, if you could just dodge mom and dad, you were doing pretty good. But in that world, there was nowhere to hide because they had servants everywhere that could spank at bottom. And they were in charge of you and looking out for you and watching out for you. And you couldn't hide for, for, for anything in the world. Some of you had that. You called it a mama. 
eyes in the back of her head. But in that day, it was like that. And he says, you really couldn't tell because the children lived like slaves and they didn't know any better. They had no way of appreciating what they had. You know, sometimes uh, uh, this royal family thing, I know I never miss a single show about that. Uh, Just kidding. Borderline lying. I care nothing about that. Now, you can go home today and say, man, our pastor just, he's not cultured. I wouldn't give you a nickel for all of that. It's worthless to me. But you'll see these little kids, and they're this tall, and sometimes you have to think, that boy has no idea how rich he is. I mean, he can buy gold ice cream from McDonald's one day if he wants to, or buy McDonald's. Has no idea. He's running around. He's got his fingers in his nose. His britches is half twisted. Pants unzipped. Standing there like a real human being among some of the greatest dignitaries in the world. But he kind of brings you back to life because you realize he has no idea the importance of those around him and what his future holds. That's how we live sometimes. Sometimes we forget that, man, we are children of God. There's a book that I started reading recently, and I'm reading several, so it's taking me a while to get through them all, but got a pretty good start on this one. Some of you uh, may know a lady named Rosemarie Miller. She was married to John Miller, uh, who I believe George did the sonship study, and But sometimes I think it's good to read a book written by the wife and hear what she has to say. And man, it's been such a blessing to me. I highly recommend it to men or women. The title of the book is Nothing is Impossible with God. And I want to just read you a quote from it. She said, the gospel was not my working theology. I love that. That caught my eye right off. We have our preaching theology. We have the theology we tell everybody. We have the theology we sing about. We have the theology we amen and get excited about. But then we have our working theology. And sometimes those are two different things. Sometimes we are not totally dependent on God like we sing or like we preach or like we teach. She says, the gospel at one time was not my working theology. My husband, he was a seminary professor. He was a missionary, uh, and they went all over the world. He was a speaker, did all kinds of incredible things, was a great writer and author and great preacher, and preached on this very thing, wrote a program called Sonship. And in the middle of that, she says, I had to realize that the gospel was not my working theology. Mine was moralism and legalism. A religion of duty and self-control through human willpower. The goal was self-justification, not the justification by faith in Christ that the gospel offers. But as many people can tell you, moralism and legalism can pass for Christianity, at least outwardly and in the good times. She said, it is only when crises come 
that you find there is no foundation on which to stand. And crises are what God used to reveal my heart's true need for Him. Her husband, in another article I found uh, just this week, people were talking about some things he said. I think we may have discussed this list before. I know Pastor George, or, uh, George and I, Dr. George, Pastor George and I, we've talked about retired Pastor Dr. George now. Her husband, now this is what her husband teaches on almost every day. Being a real son of God and not an orphan. He gave a list of things called the life of orphans. I want to just go over them. Look at them with me. Orphans have to take care of themselves. If, if you don't realize God is your father, if you think you're in yet another relationship where if you don't keep up your end of things, it's going to fall apart. God's done his part. Now you've got to do your part. That's living the life of an orphan, and orphans think that way. Orphans believe they always must be strong. They can never be weak. Orphans must protect themselves from being taken advantage of. Some people live in a constant state of fear that somebody's going to pull one over on them, or, or maybe they're not going to be righteous enough in some area of life. Orphans cannot depend on anyone. They cannot be weak. Got to stay strong. Orphans crave to be taken in and loved, but they doubt they ever will. Orphans want to be accepted. They want to belong. But orphans only trust themselves. Orphans cannot get too close to people. Orphans are always on the outside, they feel, looking in. That's a terrible way to live. But I want to tell you something. You can do it as a Christian and be a child of God, but live like an orphan. Forgetting how much God loves you and cares about you and that you're never going to impress Him and you don't have to. Wouldn't it be cool if you could just finally get through your mind that perfect has already been taken care of? Wouldn't that be great? If you could just give yourself a day off on that one. Perfect is already taken care of, and it was not my responsibility to do it. I want to go on to verse 2. But he was under guardians, this little heir, and managers until the date set by the father. Guardians and managers, that's a great word. That's what religion and that's what legalism will do to you. It will guard you and it will manage you. And I will tell you that religion is a beastly taskmaster. And it rules with a fist of fear. We're afraid all the time that we're going to do something to mess up our relationship with God. And we didn't do anything to start our relationship with God. But that's the kind of thinking that creeps into our minds. Until the dad decides, he said, they had patria potestius or potestas in Roman culture. It's Latin for the power of the father. And the father was so powerful in the Roman home, he could kill one of his own children and never go to court for it. 
I just saw some parents look over at their child. This is not Rome, though. (laughs) The power of the Father. And one day the Father would decide when the time was right for that child, that young man, that young heir to finally be called a man. Verse 3, so also we, while we were children, we were in bondage under the elemental things of the world. In bondage. He says, once you fall into the trap of legalism, you are bound. There is no escaping it outside of the power of God. The Jews were already living under the heavy hand of legalism. And the Gentiles, and that's what the people that Paul is specifically speaking to here in Galatia, he says, you Gentiles, you had your own paganistic ideas where you're throwing virgins in volcanoes to get it to rain or you're sacrificing children to, to, to get your gods to do this, that, and the other. And, and you know what pagan religions are like. You are constantly trying to do whatever you can to satisfy the desires of the gods, to keep the gods happy. And every time something bad happens, oh, the gods... They must be upset. Both the Jews and the pagans lived under those elemental things of the world. And, and he doesn't really describe those. The word in the Greek for these elemental things is one word. It means things that are all in a line. But what is he talking about? Well, if we had gone down to verse 9, I want to read it, of this same chapter. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless, here it is again, elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? It's like you were an adult. Dad finally tossed you the keys to the Maserati, and you want to go back to being a kid, getting his behind whipped all the time, not having anything explained, just hand smack, no. You know how it is when you're kids, you don't sit down with a two-year-old and have a good discussion and give them a book on responsibility. You just say no. And no means no, and that's it. You went back to that, Paul said. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, you observe, and here are the elemental things, you observe days and months. You got this from the Jews, he said. You were free from this. And seasons and years. You went back to this ritualism that is so dead and so empty. And you forsook that personal relationship that you have with God. What, what is the lure of legalism exactly? I, I, I know it's easy to say, well, we want to feel like we did it on our own. I guess that's some of it. And I think there are other parts of it too. It's easier to trust yourself and your own goodness instead of trusting God. I know that sounds crazy. Because we've messed up so much and He never has. But I can tell you, trusting God is difficult. It's a bridge too far for most. I, I, I said it at the very beginning. I can preach it. I can teach it. I can give the historical context of it. We can talk about it in the Greek and talk about it in the Hebrew. We can even talk about a little of it in French if you want to. But I can tell you, none of that's going to matter. You have to put your trust in 
God. And don't ever think, well, I can dig deep enough and I can just sort out all these scientific elements and these historical facts and put it all together. And one day I'm going to go, boom, hallelujah. There really is a God. He really is Jesus. He really died for my sins. Now I won't be saved. It's never, ever going to be like that. Paul says, when you tried that, Gentiles, he says, thinking yourselves to be wise, you became fools. You were so enamored with the creation God made, you began to use it against Him, His work against His Word. And then you began to worship the creation instead of the Creator. That's what happens. That's one part of it. Another lure of legalism is I can keep score, mine and yours. I, I, I get to feel good about myself when I go, man, I, I went a whole week and didn't cuss. And that's not my nature. Don't go home and say, hey, our pastor went a whole week without cussing. Revival broke out and 40 people got saved. I'm just telling you that you can keep your own score and, and, and you get to feel good about the good things. But here's the thing, I get to keep score on you too because I want to feel like I'm doing better than you. Man, because we love saying that crazy, foolish, dumb idea that, well, hey, some worse than me. There will always be some worse than you. There are people in prison who ate their cellmate last night. I'm guessing that's worse than you. Phew, weren't you glad I could come up with one? As long as we feel like we're ahead of somebody. What do you think we're doing? Running from a bear? You don't only have to outrun one person, you know. That's the way we treat it sometimes. And I can tell you another lure to legalism. This one from my heart. If you have legalistic parents and you never healed from that, I can tell you right now, the rest of us will never, ever measure up in your sight. And you won't allow us. I know people that you couldn't please them. You couldn't do it good enough. Even if you were God. Because God's done it and that wasn't good enough. Because in their life, it's not you that they're they still feel like they have to please. They got somebody whose body may be in a cemetery somewhere who died years ago, but they're very much alive in their heart and in their mind, and they're still trying to make a daddy proud of them who never once uttered those words. Or they're still trying to suit a mama that was... Uh, a manipulative kind of person, self-focused, that made everybody in the house feel like that they just never measured up to her expectations. And you still can be living, trying to make somebody happy that's been dead for years. Lure legalism is powerful. I want to get to this part, though. <laughs> But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time. God had a plan. I, I think sometimes when we teach the book of Genesis or read the book of Genesis and we get to the fall of man, it's like God has got this great plan. 
Everything's worked out. And he was as shocked as we were when he walked in the garden that morning in Genesis 3. My goodness, I never believed it. You and I may not have, but God knew it all along. Before he ever even created space, time, or matter, God already knew exactly what we as human beings were going to do. And he also knew exactly what it was going to take to save us. So it wasn't like it surprised him, no. He had, he had a plan. I, I remember hearing a story one time about uh, people swimming. I don't know if the, it's literally true. I can see easily how what happened, but there was a lifeguard, and they, he was watching everybody, and a guy kept getting out too far, and he had already whistled at him a couple of times, told him to come back in, and the guy finally got out too far and couldn't make it back. Well, he got out so far, nobody could go get him. And the guy was drowning, and the lifeguard never moved. He just sat there. People just started screaming at him, telling him, man, Got to go save this guy. He ain't going to make it. He can't make it back. The lifeguard never said a word, never took his eyes off of him, and he never moved. After a while, the people were irate. They were angry at the lifeguard and all of that. Finally, the man went under the last time, and it was obvious he wasn't ever coming back up. Lifeguard hit his feet. Pretend I snapped real loud then hit his feet, went and got the guy and brought him back. Saved his life. They asked him afterwards, why did you wait so long? He said, well, he said, we're trained that as long as a person thinks they can save themselves, he'll drown both of us. He says, you have to wait until the person knows there's nothing else they can do. And when they've exhausted themselves, he said, then I can save him. Well, I'm going to tell you something, friend. That lifeguard had a plan, knew what it was. Didn't make sense to people around him. God had a plan too, and it says when time, the time was was right, when the fullness of time had come. And, And let me just tell you, there were several things that point to when Jesus came to this earth that that were pretty miraculous. One People in that day spoke lots of languages, and there were different languages all over the world, of course, but in that area, people tended to be multilingual, and and, in most of the world, people are multilingual everywhere but here in the United States. We barely can communicate in English. But Alexander the Great, about 300 years before Christ came, had conquered the world, and he gave the whole entire world the lingua franca or the uh, vernacular that could be used uh, every day by everybody. And it was called the Koine Greek. Our New Testament is written in it. But he gave everybody one language. Now we have one language that most people speak And so now the story of Jesus coming to this earth can be written and understood by so many more. Also, the Romans had built roads all over the world. And this will blow your mind, but I can tell you, you can go to places in the Roman Empire today and roads they built 2,000 years ago still don't have potholes. Really? 
We have potholes with diving boards here, and they just built it last year. But they built roads all over the world, and, and it was incredible, and people could travel. Also, religiously, the Roman gods were beginning to be seen as failures. They had not come through like people thought they were. So paganism, it was a bad time. And, and Judaism as well. Judaism had just grown weary, man, uh, on many people's hearts and minds. You had the uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Zealots, the Herodians, and other different religious sects. But only 10% of the whole population belonged to all of them put together. 90% of the people didn't belong to any of those groups, and they were treated like outcasts. So Judaism was beginning to be a pain as well and seen as a failure. And it was during that time that it says God sent forth His Son. Man, I'll tell you, that's a powerful word. It doesn't mean God had a child. No. It means son of, in the Hebrew, we talked about it before, means he is the absolute substance of God. He was as much God standing in that boat with 12 disciples while they fished as he was when he spoke creation into being. Jesus was God. God was Jesus. We know that there was the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, but it was one God, a God that could have a conversation within Himself and could say things like, let us make man in our image. That's why God knew what love was all about before He ever created anything on this earth to love. He already loved within Himself. The Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father and the Holy Spirit, that was the first community that existed and it has existed eternally. God sent His Son means God came. The Nicene Creed in 325 A.D., I'm sure you've probably read some of it this morning. But they had a word in that creed called homoousia. And usia means substance, and homo means same. And, and, and I hate it when people say, well, the church in 325 A.D. made Jesus God. No, not any more than Newton made gravity. Okay? They just made a pronouncement that Jesus is God. Homo usia, he is the same substance of God. Jesus was God walking here among us. Now, you say, well, pastor, we already know that. What is the big deal? Well, I can tell you, it is a really big deal in our world. I posted this week about the Christmas tree, the most expensive Christmas tree in the world. It costs $11.5 million. I, I think actually, and I should have noted it on there because it was an old post that I reposted, but CNN came out with a story, I think, in 2010. But this Christmas tree that is decorated with Rolex watches and gold jewelry to the point that it is worth $11.5 million is not in a church but it is in an airport in a Muslim country. 
I would have thought they wouldn't allow a Christmas tree in a place where it's against the law to be a Christian. Listen, as long as you don't start talking about Jesus being God, he is embraced by almost every religion in the world. If you went to that Christmas tree in that airport and you began to preach that Jesus was God and there was no other God but Him, I can tell you it wouldn't be long and they would sever your head. But you see, now I want you to think about that. If you just take the gospel and water it down enough, man, there are people that think, oh, the Muslims have a Christmas tree. Isn't that great? Why don't we all join hands around this big old Christmas tree and just have us a, a multicultural Christmas right here? Amen? Well, you can do that if you don't understand that Jesus is God. If you're willing to sell out on that, if you're willing to even just say, well, I believe it, but they don't have to. Man, I want to tell you something. You can have a group hug all the way around the world. It is amazing. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I, I think about what we've done with Jesus. Do, do you know that I, and I know you probably do, but uh, you know St. Nicholas is a real, was a real man? He, he lived back in, uh, I think like 120-so to 340-something. It was rumored that he might have been uh, part of uh, the Nicene Council, but his name never shows up on any of the rolls. But there really was a guy named St. Nicholas. It says he was born to very rich parents and that there were three daughters of a very poor family and he dropped some money through a window in the dark of night, ho, 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 and paid the dowry for all three of those girls to keep them out of slavery. Now, whether that happened or not, I don't know. But there really was a St. Nicholas. If he were to come back today, do you think he'd recognize himself down at the mall? You see what we've done with old St. Nicholas? If he came in and said, man, I'm St. Nicholas, we'd go, wow, dude, I got a picture of you at the house. We have a blow-up thing, man. My mother-in-law passed out trying to get all air in it yesterday. Floating around in our yard. It would be amazing. As a matter of fact, I saw in the New York Post yesterday they had what they call SantaCon. And it basically is a drunken stupor for 30,000 people in New York City. And they dress up if they dress in little Santa Claus outfits, get as drunk as they possibly can, and hoop and holler. And one of the guys was quoted as saying that, ho, ho. Ho doesn't mean anything to do with Christmas. Pagan. I wonder how he'd feel if he found out they had SantaCon just yesterday. Well, I want to tell you something. He's not coming back. But one of these days, Jesus is. And I wonder what he's going to think of what we've done with him. 
we've made him everybody's buddy. We've got everybody going to heaven now, Jesus. That whole deal on the cross, sorry about that. Wish you had to talk to us sooner. We've got everybody now knowing you. We've so watered it down. We just treat all of the holy things, communion, baptism, we treat all of those things as if that's just a drawing card for the world and we evangelize with it and it, we, we just can't bring ourselves to ever tell anybody that they're lost or they're not included in any of that. And, and, and I wonder what, well, I don't have to wonder what he would say. I know what he would say about the way we have so customized and personalized Jesus Christ. Something else. It is something else. Verse 5, But that he might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive, or we might receive the adoption as sons. In verse 4 it says, He was born under the law, and then verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. He came here and was born under the law. But he kept the law. And that was the way he could save us. He didn't abolish the law, remember? We studied that a few weeks ago in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So he was born under the jurisdiction of the law. But he kept the law. And because he kept the law perfectly, he was able to be a sacrifice for our sins. So that now, in Christ, we are no longer under the law. What an awesome, awesome thing. That's still hard for us sometimes. I think sometimes, and I'm going to make one more point, and we'll close sometime. You remember when the prodigal son was rehearsing his little story he was going to tell his dad when he got home? In Luke 15, 19, he says, I'm going to go tell him that I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. I got so much guilt and so much shame that'll be easier for me. If I can exist in your house, Father, just as a hired hand, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Now, he comes home with this story, and before he even gets through it, his father just absolutely overwhelms him with love and restoration. But do you see what, what he was saying? I can never be good enough to be your son. Just, just let me do the best I can. That'll be easier for me. Trusting in you to forgive me for what I have done? I can't believe it. I can't wrap my mind around that. I can't believe it. I've been off not just slopping pigs. I've been eating the slop with the pigs. And I took my inheritance and I blew it. And I'm broke as a convict coming home. And I am not worthy to be called your son. And I know that's humble and all of that. And that's wonderful that, that he had that kind of brokenness about him. But I can tell you, he was serious when he was saying, I just don't feel like I can ever be forgiven for the things that I have done. It'll be easier if you let me be a servant and not a son. 
I really think there are a lot of people in this world who just can't believe they can ever be forgiven. They go to church because they're a servant. They help out with things because they're a servant. But that's about as much as they feel like they're ever going to be able to be. They, they, some of the nicest people you might ever meet in your life. But that's about all they ever feel like they're going to be able to be. I could never be forgiven. Pastor, you don't have any idea what I've done. It doesn't make any difference what you have done. I want to tell you, you can be forgiven. But I can't make you believe that. So I'm praying the Holy Spirit will do that. Verse 6, because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He gave us His Spirit. Paul tells us in other places, 1 Corinthians 1.22, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. You know why God gave me His Spirit? One of the reasons that He gave me His Spirit, put His Spirit inside of me, that is to mark me as He owns me. That boy belongs to me. Man, that's pretty cool. I don't know a whole lot of important people, but I can tell you this. I know God, and God will tell you if you get there first that He knows me. Not only does He know me, He said, I gave Him my spirit so the devil and all of hell will know that that boy right there belongs to me. How cool is that? Wow. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How long will that seal last? Long enough. You belong to me, God says. God's way of declaring his mind. Abba Father, we mentioned this before. It's kind of a linguistic fossil that, that survived over into the Greek. It's an Aramaic word. And we probably have too, made it too simplistic, but here's the cool part. We came in as adopted sons, but when we cry, Abba, Father, that means we are real children of God. Because Abba was a, a phrase that the man's blood, flesh and blood children called him. Not his adopted children, but his real children would call him. His actual children would call him Abba, Father. So he says, I have adopted you as a son, but he says, I put my son's spirit in you so you can look at me and we can cry out together. God says, join the invocation that, that he is, I'm a father. God is my father and I belong to him. Wow. Romans eight fifteen. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons of God, as sons of God, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit. God is like saying, hey, say it with me. I am your Father. Stop this business of thinking you've got to 
keep me happy and satisfied and, 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 and that you've got to somehow or another earn my love. That might have been your father or your mother or people in the world around you. But he says, say it with me that God is my father. And then last of all, verse 7. For you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Wow. So much more. It's hard sometimes to know what to say and what to skip. But I'm just telling you, I hope today this garbled, one-eyed message made some sense. We are children of God. And I, I know, hey, we all have loved ones that are lost, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you, hey, everybody, we're all children of God. No, we're not. And Christmas is one of our favorite times of the year to pretend that. Oh, the whole world has a Savior. Well, He did come and die for the whole world. But the whole world has not accepted Him. The whole world has not put their trust and faith in Him. The best thing you know you could do is to take those family members. I know if they're your children, if they're your father, your mother, whoever it is, best thing you could probably do is in a godly, prayerful way, get on their nerves. Quit treating them like the lies they believe are true. Quit helping them live in make-believe land that somehow or another, because of Christmas and that baby in the manger and all of that, that one day we're all going to be singing with the angels in heaven. No. Most people are not ever going to be. Sad. That's what Jesus said. But I want to close today with this. There's so many of us who have put our faith and trust in God. And we have trusted Him for our salvation, but I'm afraid that might not be our working theology. I think sometimes we're still holding our feet to the fire. We're still beating ourselves senseless. Feeling like that the more we hurt or or the, the more that we make ourselves feel poorly for our lives or whatever, that, that somehow another is going to pay for our sinfulness. I can just tell you, all that happens when you do that is you make yourself miserable and you make everybody else miserable as well. You're never going to measure up. Paul told the church at Galatia, what are you, foolish? You started out broken, you started out coming to God with just nothing but a sinful, sin-sick soul. And you fell at the feet of God crying out for mercy because you had no case. And, and there was no reason for Him to love you at all. There was nothing good about you. And yet somewhere along the way, you started being a religious person. And you started keeping up with Sacrifices and Sabbaths and 
you got interested in some rituals and you started trying to complete your own salvation. We can't do it. Let's pray. I pray, God, that you'd help us today. I pray, Lord, you'd help me. Lord, you know today I have fought discouragement like a bear. Just being honest, God, with you, and I know these here in my prayer, but I'm talking to you, Lord. I fought it like a beast today. I pray you'll help me, God. A lot of that comes from my lack of dependence on you. Me thinking, Lord, that if I work hard enough, the sermon will be good. Or if I pray enough, or read your word enough, or study enough, or, or try to work hard enough for you, Lord, that it'll make me feel better as a person come Sunday morning. God, forgive me. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that they're lost right now, they don't know you as their Savior because, God, they just cannot believe that they can be forgiven. I can't convince them, God, but I pray that you would. I pray, Lord, you would touch them right now with your Holy Spirit and they would not leave this place today until they declare that you are their Lord and Savior and that they repent of their sinfulness, God, and depend on your work on Calvary for their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.